How's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, we jump into training the gut for endurance athletes. What can competitive hot dog eaters teach endurance athletes? Also, we take a look at the spot tracker, and I also give you some inside insight into how I train for my longest endurance mountain bike events with the minimal training time that I've ever ever had also what should you look for when choosing a coach let's get into it welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach maddie graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are Hey guys, it's Matty Graham here from Exponential Performance Coaching. Welcome back to another Exponential Performance Podcast. I hope you like the new sound. I've just upgraded the microphone. We've gone full out, full professional podcasting setup. I hope the sound quality is a lot better. I hope you appreciate it. I hope you enjoy it. Because I did have to fork out a bit of cash for this bad boy. But hopefully... It'll make the podcast a lot better, a lot easier to listen to. So if you like the new sound, please leave a comment below. Give me a thumbs up because we're taking things to the next level. Now, in episode three, we covered a little bit about the Indian Pacific Wheel Race which is that 5,500-kilometer self-supported bike packing event in Australia that went from Perth all the way over to Sydney, Australia. Now, we covered it a little bit about the never-give-up mentality, just keep going, keep pushing. And one guy that really, really embodied that was Mike Hall, who was a a legendary, just an absolute legend when it came to you know ultra-endurance cycling. I was very, very sad that Mike Hall was actually hit by a car and killed during the India Pacific wheel race. Um, and it was it was less than a thousand kilometers from the finish. So it was deeply, deeply saddening to hear that news. Um, I've never met Mike, but I've followed you know a lot of the races that he's done, just looked at that little blue dot cruising along, you know, whether it be across America or Australia. He's an absolute legend. So yeah, great sadness that um to hear that news that Mike Hall has passed away. So just uh you know thinking of him and and his family in this time and you know may he rest in peace and no doubt his you know legacy and energy and everything that he brought to ultra endurance cycling will, will live on. Also, just to follow up from uh, last week's podcast episode four about how to fuel your morning training sessions I throw out the question about what is your favorite early morning training snack and we got a lot of uh, feedback on that um, I got a lot of people is, is opt, are opting for the bananas bananas are a very very popular uh, early morning training food and some people top that up with a milo if uh, if you're from New Zealand you'll be common uh, you'll be familiar with a milo or in other countries, a hot chocolate, um, and also smoothies. Definitely a big, uh, a big favourite were early morning smoothies before they head out the door. 
And one that was from Ant Jackson, who's a triathlete from Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, and he said that one of his favourites is peanut butter and banana on toast with a sprinkle of cinnamon. He says it's a real treat for those early morning training sessions. And it's even endorsed by Rebecca Wilson Nutrition. Now, Rebecca Wilson Nutrition, we've had her, uh, I've had her on my YouTube channel doing some uh, question and answers. So I'll definitely post a link to those. And if you are looking for nutrition advice, I highly recommend uh, Rebecca Wilson Nutrition. She's one of the top people that I recommend to all the athletes that I work with. And she works with people all over New Zealand, all over the world, to uh, help refine their nutrition. So, enough of that. Let's get on with the show and jump into Lessons from the Lab. Alrighty, Lessons from the Lab. Now, here's a fun fact for you. The all-time record for hot dog eating is 69 hot dogs and the bun in 10 minutes. Can you believe that? 69 hot dogs and the bun eaten and consumed, swallowed, not thrown up within 10 minutes. Now that is flipping amazing, I thought. If anyone wants to give it a go at home, please take a video and send it in to me because I'd be very, very keen to see. Now, why am I talking about a hot dog eating contest? Well, what it shows us is that the gut is highly trainable. You're probably sitting there listening to this thinking, far out, there's no way I'd be able to stuff that much food in my stomach and keep it down. Well, people can. Competitive uh, eaters, that's exactly what they do. And they actually train to do it. They actually train so that their stomach can handle this amount of food. And what's really cool about that is it means that we can also train our stomachs to handle larger quantities of food, uh, not feel so bloated uh, during endurance events. Now, GI problems are very common during endurance events, and no doubt you've probably experienced uh, some too. Uh, the stats say that somewhere between 30 to 50% of all athletes experience some GI problems on a regular basis. The causes of these are largely unknown, but it is, it is more than likely that it's due to blood flow to the stomach being decreased during exercise because the blood redistributed and it heads out to the muscles rather than the non-essential organs such as the stomach. Dehydration seems to exacerbate these symptoms as well, and it also is highly individualized or highly variable between individuals, with some people managing to handle the food very well in their stomachs, and other people getting very bad GI problems. And when I say GI problems, I'm talking about bloating, stomach cramps, nausea, uh, diarrhea, you know, getting runner's diarrhea, just having to stop because your stomach contents is coming out, and also vomiting. And these vary on a scale of, you know, being rather mild all the way through to being pretty severe and ruining your race day. So there's a, a mounting body of evidence out there suggesting that the GI system is highly adaptable. Gastric emptying, as well as stomach comfort, 
can actually be trained and you can decrease your perception of fullness and some studies have also shown that there are nutrient specific increases in gastric emptying. So what does this actually mean? Well, if you're one of those people that commonly experience GI issues during a race, you're unable to keep your food down, you're feeling sick, it's impacting your performance, then you can actually train your gut through some specific methods which I'll share very soon so that you're able to consume more food or the same amount, get it down, fuel your muscles and improve your performance. So if you're having problems, definitely want to look at this. The other one that we really want to focus on is people that are on a low carbohydrate diet. Because if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, the body actually adapts to being on that low carbohydrate diet and it downregulates its ability to absorb carbohydrate. So what that means is that if you're going to go into a race and use a high carbohydrate fueling method, which some people do, then the chances of having GI problems in that race are very, very high because the stomach's not going to be ready for it. However, the cool thing is, is that GI training has been shown to be effective in as little as two weeks. So how do we actually go about training the gut? Well, here's five different methods that you can use. First one is to train using relatively large volumes of fluid in the stomach. This will help train the stomach, so to speak. You can train immediately after a meal. If you go out training, you can use relatively high carbohydrates intake during exercise. You can go out and use your planned race nutrition consume that during a training session um, or you can just increase your carbohydrate content in your diet. All of these different training methods are aimed at reducing bloating and fullness during exercise, that feeling in the gut. Increased gastric emptying, so the rate at which uh, your stomach contents is emptied. Increased capacity to absorb carbohydrate and the increased delivery of carbohydrate and all of these uh, then flow on to reduce all of those symptoms associated with GI problems and ultimately lead to an improvement in performance. So what does this mean in the real world? I've given you five different strategies that you can use and what the research says is that if you implement these strategies approximately two weeks out from your event then you're going to be in a better shape to fuel your body during the event and decrease the risk of these GI problems happening. So what I would suggest is somewhere between three, two to three weeks, that final loading phase of your training, you start heading out, and especially if your events are long endurance events such as an Ironman, uh, an ultra endurance cycling event such as a 12 or 24 hour mountain bike race, um, or a marathon and you have these known GI problems in the past, get out and start doing some of those training sessions. Train with you know large volumes of fluid in your stomach to get used to that feeling. Uh, train right after a meal. Train with high carbohydrate intake during your sessions. Get out and use your planned race nutrition uh, and then increase your carbohydrate content of your diet in general so that you get the benefits of these GI training adaptations and so that hopefully on race day 
you've ticked all the boxes and your stomach will be able to take in the fuel that you're giving it, whatever form that may be, digest it, it's been able to be absorbed into your blood and your muscles, pick it up, boom, without any problems. So there you have it, some information on training for the gut. Alrighty, gear junkie. What I wanted to do today is review a little GPS tracker called a spot tracker. Now the spot tracker is not exactly new on the scene, but it's becoming more and more mainstream for people to have these, not only for tracking during races when often these little units are supplied, but also for personal day-to-day usage. The price of the unit's actually quite reasonable, somewhere between $250-$350 depending on who you buy it through, if you've got a special deal or whatever, and you can get the older generation spot trackers for a lot cheaper than that as well. These spot trackers are about the size of a play, pack of playing cards, and they weigh next to nothing. They usually take uh, four lithium-ion AAA batteries. And they just sit on the outside of your backpack or wherever it might be. They need to have direct uh, vision of the sky. And what they do is they'll track you as you go along. If you've ever watched any bike packing events online following the little blue dots, these are the trackers that are most likely being used during those events. So a lot of people are starting to use them now as a little bit of an insurance policy for when they're training by themselves in the backcountry. Uh, whether you're a mountain biker, adventure racer, multi-sport, a trail runner, that sort of thing. And what it allows is your friends, family, your partner to be able to track where you are throughout this training run so that if anything does go wrong, they know where you are. It also acts as a locator beacon, a personal locator beacon, just in case something does go wrong. All you've got to do then is push the SOS button and a message will be sent to your local search and rescue, which you set up when you register your spot tracker, and then the helicopter will be coming out to get you, or a search party, whatever it might be. So very nice little insurance policy there. It differs a little bit to a normal personal locator beacon, and obviously the tracking aspect, but also it has the ability to send OK messages or pre um pre-programmed messages as well so you've got the ability to push the OK button that'll send your location and a pre-programmed message such as I'm OK or I'm camping here the night whatever it might be to the people that are registered to your spot tracker and they'll get a text message or an email saying the message and then also your location which is really handy let's say if uh, you're late home Um, and you're stuck somewhere, maybe the river's come up, or you've had a mechanical, you can push OK. It stops them worrying, but lets them know where you are and potentially how long you're going to be based on where your location is. So a couple of the downsides, or the things to be aware with these trackers, they aren't very waterproof. So if you're going to use them for marine activity, you definitely want them in a dry bag. They recommend having them in a little plastic bag, um, even for you know, mountain bike, bike packing sort of thing, and they don't like getting too much rain on them because they aren't overly waterproof. 
They are reasonably water resistant, and I've never experienced any problems with that, but they're definitely not waterproof. So if you were going to buy them for, you know, ocean paddling or kayaking, you definitely want to make sure that uh, you had it very well watertight because you'd hate to lose it overboard and it be drowned. The other thing to be aware of is the cost, not of the unit, but of the registration to a tracking website. So you have to register these units on a tracking website, and what that will allow you to do is to have that unit show where you are at any one time. The cost of this is about the same cost as the unit, but it's a usually a yearly subscription to these uh, member-based websites. So it can be a bit of an unexpected cost for a lot of people, so just be aware of that. So overall, I highly rate the spot trackers. If you are going to be doing a lot of work uh, in the backcountry, in the bush, running, in the hills, definitely a worthwhile insurance policy if you're going to be out of that cell phone range a lot. But just be aware that it's not overly waterproof and also there is that cost of the subscription to the tracking website. So there you have it, we'll wrap it up. That's Gear Junkie, done. Now lessons from life. I got a question from a listener that said the biggest mountain bike race I've done is 125 kilometers. I'm keen to step things up, but I don't have a heap of time to commit to training. Silly, I know. Do you have any tips? Well, what I wanted to do is just talk about um, my personal experience with this because I was probably in a very similar situation. I had done a, a bit of mountain bike racing around that mark, somewhere between you know the, the 50 to 150 kilometers couple of 12 hours but nothing too massive and then I decided to sign up for the Great Southern Brevet and also the Tour of Aotearoa these were a few years apart so the first one of these events was the Great Southern Brevet that I started training for this was 1100 kilometers self-supported on a mountain bike um, it sort of coincided with the birth of our, my first child Elsie about eight months before this event so what I really had to focus on was a change in my training approach to make sure I was able to maximize my performance on the day. The other event that I've done um, is the Tour of Aotearoa, which is 3,000 kilometers from Cape Reinga at the top of New Zealand, all the way down to Bluff at the bottom, so the length of the country. This, like I said, 3,000 kilometers on a mountain bike, again, self-supported. Um, and by this stage of my uh, life, I had now two children, uh, again, trying to train with those young ones in the house. So how did I do it? Well, you don't need a lot of time to train and prepare for these long-distance events if you are smart and use some clever tricks. So what I wanted to do today was share some of those with you. So I'm not exactly sure how much you're going to step things up with your, you know, your racing distances, but I went from about 100, 150k races all the way up to 1,100 kilometer events. So I was doing this on quite limited time um, with my training because I was juggling, obviously, coaching, 
day-to-day running of my coaching business and also family life as not just a dad but a part-time stay-at-home dad Um, and with these other commitments that I had as well it was a bit of a juggle but definitely one that I was keen to embrace on the start line of the Great Southern Brevet I was talking to a lot of people about the training that they'd done and there were stories of you know epic training rides multiple days uh, huge training weeks and to be honest over the nine weeks leading in to the Great Southern Brevet in 2014 my average sorry my longest training ride was just over four hours and in fact my weekly training volume on average for the past nine weeks clocked in at five and a half hours on average so how did I prepare myself with in such short amount of time well what I did is I looked at the events that I was going to train for and I identified four key factors that I thought would give me the best return for my time investment these were metabolic efficiency strength endurance uh, training specificity and anaerobic threshold so I'll go through each one of those now so metabolic efficiency for ultra endurance athletes this is the cornerstone of your performance if you can become very efficient at burning fat as a fuel and burn a higher proportion of fat to carbohydrate at higher workloads when you ride you're going to be able to ride for longer this is your endurance now traditionally this is developed in training plans using long you know slow distance training which works well but obviously takes up a lot of time so to reduce the amount of time required to get the desired gains what I did is I used a lot of muscle glycogen manipulation training or nutrient deprivation training methods and I've talked briefly about these in our last podcast and I mentioned them um, just before in lessons from the lab about training the gut and how that these don't want to be done just solely on their own but the general idea is to go out in a fasted state and that improves your body's ability to metabolize fat as a fuel it also triggers the switch for a number of changes in your metabolism and the the stimulation for more mitochondria to be produced so that you're able to metabolize more fat as a fuel so sessions uh, that I did would be going out for a long ride before breakfast and without eating anything during the ride and that way I was putting a large metabolic stress on my body and I wouldn't have to ride for hours on end because I could get the training adaptations required in a smaller amount of time the body uh, triggers these adaptations to happen when it gets low on energy so if I was one starting low on energy and then two driving it lower without refueling the depletion happened faster but I'd still get the adaptation that I was after without having to put in lots and lots of training the second uh, key area that I worked on was my strength endurance I you know expected the course would have a lot of climbing in it and it did uh, it came in at around about 14,000 meters of climbing over that 1,100 kilometers and I knew this was going to be amplified by the added weight of my loaded bike and gear which links partly into the next one but 
what I really focused on was developing my strength endurance. And what that means is hills, 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 steep hills, long gradual hills, short sharp hills, whatever types of hills you know were going, I was riding them. Once I had all of my gear bags organized, I added those to my bike and I started riding up the hills loaded with the added weight. All about developing that strength endurance. Hills, hills, hills. That's what it's after. I'd never done such a big event such as this before. So I, I, I paid quite close attention to the specific nature required uh, for this event. So I did a lot of my rides with a loaded bike as I talked about to get me used to the weight, to the handling of the bike in my riding position. I did quite a lot of my rides early in the morning and late at night. And this was largely just because this allowed me to keep, one, my day free for other commitments. Also getting my body clock set to riding at different times of the day because I would ride for 20 hours every day during the event. Also gave me good practice with my lighting system. And also it was when, well hopefully everyone was sleeping in my family as well. I'd get up and ride before the kids woke up most of the time but sometimes with a newborn you can't dip, uh, you know you can't predict when they're going to wake up or go out in the evening after they went to bed and this is one aspect that I really felt helped and paid off greatly was this specificity and the final thing I really focused on was uh, my anaerobic threshold and why this may seem a little bit strange to pay attention to a, your anaerobic threshold for an ultra endurance event what I really knew was that a high anaerobic threshold is the primary predictor of endurance performance and this is because when you ride any given distance or time you will ride at a certain percentage of your anaerobic threshold power the longer the event is the lower this percentage is however the higher your anaerobic threshold is, the higher the absolute power or speed beat will be at any given percentage. So if you have a high anaerobic threshold, you're naturally going to ride faster at any given speed to someone with a lower anaerobic threshold. Training your anaerobic threshold is relatively easy. Not easy because it's very hard, hard work, but it is easy to do because the sessions are quite short. It gives you a really good bang for your buck in terms of your training time. So if you are pushed for time, hitting your anaerobic threshold is a very, very effective way of training. So there you have it. I participated in two of my longest events when I was the most busiest or had the least amount of time to commit to my training. And that's how I really did it. For the Tour of Aotearoa, it was a very, very similar approach. I added in some you know, some longer overnight sessions in there, but not as many as you would think. So that's my tips. That's the lesson from life this week. I hope that helps you get into some bigger, longer mountain bike events, even though you don't have as much time to commit to training. Find the time, be smart with your training, get out there and get into it. Lessons from life. Done.
Alrighty, we've got a quick question Q&A today. Our question is about what to look for in a coach. Let's have a listen. Hello, my name is uh, Milan Brodina and I'm an uh, endurance junkie. And uh, I've got a question. Mary, how do you recognize a good coach? When are you choosing a coach? How do you know that you are, uh, that you are making a good, good decision uh, choosing one? Thank you. All right, Milan, thanks for your question. How do you recognize a good coach when you're choosing one? That's very, very interesting. And what I wanted to do is just give you some of my perspectives from uh, coaches that I've worked with. I've worked with coaches uh, right from Olympic level coaches down to grassroots coaches and across a, a range of different sports as well, cycling, kayaking, um, hockey, rugby, and also in snow sports. And there's some things that really stand out among coaches. A lot of There are a lot of different coaches out there, and a lot of the coaches have different uh, personalities, obviously, because they're all individuals. And I think that's what's really important, first of all, is that the athlete and the coach relationship is a strong one. If you don't have a really good relationship with your coach, then it's really hard for the process to work both ways, not just from an athlete perspective, but also from a coach perspective, that having an athlete that is as engaged in the process as the coach is engaged is really, really key. One thing that I would say is that I think coaches need a good understanding of the human body, especially when we're talking about endurance coaches, which 99% of the time are about writing training programs to get specific responses to improve their physiology. And the reason I say this is it's kind of like a mechanic. Now, I personally can change some tires on a car. I can top up the the oil. I can, you know, I can top up the windscreen wiper fluid. I can put air in the tires. That's about it. I, I can do a little bit. But if I wanted my car to be fixed or I wanted it to be souped up to go a bit faster, maximize the performance, or I had a really old classic car that I wanted to have well looked after, then I'd take it to a mechanic. And that's because I don't know enough about how a car works internally. And I think coaches that can do a few things, but don't know how the internal workings of the human body work, can sometimes lead athletes in the wrong direction or cause harm. So I think that's, that's thing number one, is, is a good coach has a good understanding of the human body, especially when it comes to endurance coaches. I approach my training and coaching from an exercise physiology standpoint I usually look at things from you know through those eyes the science of it the other thing that's really important I believe is how to apply that science there are a lot of scientists out there that aren't able to apply science very well to the real world and as a coach what I really focus on is how to take that knowledge that's written in articles and journal articles that's been created in a lab and how do you then take that and apply it to a real world athlete 
And for me, that's the most interesting and fun part of the whole process. Because while it's worked on average with you know all of these people in the lab, how do you then take it and apply it to the real world? That's when you start to be able to experiment with athletes and try different things, see what their personal response is, and then adjust things. And it's just all about tinkering, tinkering with that car to you know maximize the performance. And I guess as well, when you look at coaches across the spectrum, it's kind of like mechanics. You've got your general local mechanic that fixes all sorts of cars all the way through to you know, the, the mechanic that works on the Ferraris at the F1, the race cars. Two of the same roles, mechanics, but very different in what they're actually doing. And I think the same goes for coaches as well. So it's really important to, um, you know, match what your goals are, what your needs are, with what the coach's expertise are. A lot of high-performance coaches I've found aren't very good at coaching grassroots people just because they are so used to dealing with athletes at a high-performance level who have very different needs to grassroots. It may be a cycling coach where at the high-performance level it's all about what intervals to do, what your power is, all that sort of stuff. Whereas down at the introductory level, it's all about how to handle your bike, how to pedal in circles, you know, and what's the best bike shorts to wear and how to set up your seat height. So it is very different depending on who you are. But the number one thing I would say is find a coach that you gel well with. I have stopped working with certain athletes just because I felt that the coach-athlete relationship wasn't working. And that's fine. I don't expect uh, to get on with everybody and I don't expect everybody to get on with me. And it's really important that that cohesiveness works really well. Some of the best uh, coach-athlete relationships I've had are where athletes are very engaged in their coaching and their training because I am very engaged in in coaching and training and I like to have that uh, two-way communication flow. Some athletes, however, don't want that two-way communication flow. They just want to be given the program and then to do it. They don't mind the why behind the program, but other athletes really want to know the why. And if that athlete asks, why am I doing such a session, I would expect that a coach was able to give that to them, give them the why behind what they're doing. It's interesting. A lot of the time I think people think coaches need to have been there themselves or have performed at a similar level, which in some cases is is helpful. But there are a lot of world-class coaches out there coaching world champions that aren't actually world champions themselves. And there's a lot of world champion athletes out there who have become coaches but they can't seem to get their message across because they've worked so hard at being an athlete not actually a coach so it's very interesting actually I don't think there is a one right answer of what makes a good coach there's definitely aspects of a good coach what I would really look for is that coach that's got a big tool bag that they've got different tools 
that they can use for different situations. They don't apply the same training method across the board for every single athlete, which is sometimes hard to know because you don't know the different approaches that they're applying to different athletes. So I hope that sort of answers the question, Milan, about what to look for in a coach. Um, If it hasn't, flick me through another message and we'll do my best to answer it. So there you have it, team. That's wrapping up episode five of the Exponential Performance Podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have, please leave me a message. Tell me what you found useful. If you've got a question, please send me through a voice message and I will do my best to answer it for you. Get out there, train hard, but most importantly, train smart. <laughs>